You're listening to audio from the Decidedly Podcast. Today's episode is a rebroadcast of our conversation originally aired back in October of 2021 with Eric Maddox, the lead interrogator who found Saddam Hussein. In this episode, he shares exactly what steps he followed to locate Saddam Hussein. We couldn't help but share it twice. I'm Morgan, your producer, and this is Decidedly. Welcome to Decidedly, where we're all about defeating bad decision making. I'm Sean Smith here with my co-host and my favorite son, Sanger Smith. And today we are talking with Eric Maddox. The story you're going to hear is phenomenal. You've heard of Saddam Hussein. This is the guy that tracked him down, the interrogator who found Saddam Hussein and found him with minutes to spare before it wouldn't have happened at all. So you're going to love this story. I always thought an interrogator worked like Jack Bauer from 24. And I mentioned that to Eric in the episode, and I had no idea the response I was going to get, but it was really interesting and I wasn't even prepared for it. So you're going to love this episode. I know I did. Listen up. Eric, you and I and Sanger got had a chance to meet was about a month ago or so in uh, downtown Fort Worth. You were at a speaking engagement and uh we just yeah, we loved your story and we thought let's let's have eric on and have him talk about the decisions that he made when he was over in iraq and finding saddam hussein oh, it's a great story so i i wanted to uh go ahead and, and have you share that with us oh thank you sure so in 2003 we all remember the united states went to war in Iraq. And at that time I was a staff sergeant in the United States Army and I was a trained interrogator. But Sean, you remember at that time I had never actually conducted a live interrogation before. Along with being a trained interrogator, the United States military had also taught me Chinese Mandarin. And for years, the military decided I was much more valuable as a Chinese Mandarin linguist than I would ever be as an interrogator. So in 2003, the United States has invaded Iraq. I was told 100% I would not be sent to the Middle East. Clearly, three months into the war, I lo and behold, <laughs> highly unexpected orders for Baghdad. And my commander in Los Angeles, he said, Eric, these orders are top secret. They don't say what unit you're going to. And I said, mean, me what the i you mean that we are going to he said these orders are just for you so i wasn't told anything 10 days later i board a military aircraft for the baghdad international airport i get there and i am picked up by this team of soldiers but they're wearing civilian clothes and they have full beards and they didn't say anything to me and they took me to this building sat me down and they said you're now with the Joint Special Operations Command. That's the United States Military Task Force responsible for tracking down the most wanted people in the world. They said ever since we invaded Iraq, the most wanted man in the world is Saddam Hussein. He's the ace of spades. And as you remember in 2003, the Department of Defense, they created that deck of playing cards and it was Saddam and all of his senior regime member, and one of the bearded soldiers okay. said, Eric, Joint Special Operations Command, our exclusive mission is to track down and kill or capture every single person on the deck of cards, mainly Saddam. And I'm sitting there obviously in shock. And I just said, 
That's awesome. That, that is so cool. I didn't even know if you guys existed. And now I do. What on <laughs> earth am I doing here? I'm a Chinese Mandarin linguist. And one of the bearded soldiers said, you're a trained interrogator. You're former infantry. You're ranger qualified. And they were right. When I first enlisted in the Army back in 1994, I enlisted as an infantry grunt. I spent three years as a paratrooper at the 82nd Airborne Division. And while I was there, I went and I graduated ranger school. And years later, they taught me Chinese Mandarin and trained me as an interrogator. And one of the bearded soldiers said, Eric, we have Delta Force teams all through Baghdad looking for Saddam. They're doing raids every night, flooding us with prisoners. He said, that Delta Force team keeps calling us interrogators and wants us to go up there with them on the raids. He said, Eric, we're, we're interrogators. We're not infantry. We don't go on raids. So we called the army and we said, listen, give us a list of every single interrogator who's former infantry and a graduate of ranger school. They said, Eric, you were the only name on the list. So welcome to Baghdad. So Sean Sanger, that's how I began my very first ever wartime deployment what were, you, what were you expecting at that point i mean you had that had to rattle you out of your cage to come from somebody who is expecting to be a chinese intelligence officer to all of a sudden finding yourself in in baghdad uh did you did you sort of know what they were going to be asking you in a in a sense or was that a shock i had no idea that's a great question i had no idea what to expect. And unfortunately, I probably expected what, you know, a non-military person would expect. And that's when, when you get attached to this great task force, they're going to have so many people that are great interrogators and, and they're really prepared for this. But when I got there, I realized, oh my goodness, none of these interrogators are getting these prisoners to open up. And the reason is, and this is where I love about your podcast, I love the idea of decidedly, is how do you make good decisions? And I think good decisions, again, I don't want to get too in deep to it just yet, but it's about analyzing a situation. And so when I realized, wait a second, they have interrogators, but those interrogators aren't experienced. Why? Because the Joint Special Operations Command had always had the mission of tracking down the most wanted people in the world. But the way they did that was through hostage rescue and taking out individuals. They would do individual missions. They didn't go into a battlefield, into a war zone, set up shop, and do extended hunts where what required them to do then is bring in prisoners who were going to be detained for weeks and months at a time and conduct interrogation operations. That just wasn't part of their mission. So what I realized when I got there is, wait a second. The most elite task force in the world has never done interrogation operations. Why should I expect anybody to know how to make these prisoners talk and to do these interrogations? So it, when you think about, you know, we have these images of what an interrogation looks like. You know, it, you know, if we've seen, you know, Jack Bauer, you know, coming in and, you know, kicking the door open, there's a, there's a guy blindfolded sitting on a chair in a concrete room with a naked bulb hanging above it. You know, and he smacks him around a little bit and, you know, we're going to, you know, the gun to his head, tell us where the bomb is. I mean, that's my vision of what, what an interrogator looks like. 
how close is that to what it's what's really happening mm, it's not very close okay and it's really not very co close because in reality if you watch jack bauer and we analyze that we go i wouldn't talk and that prisoner wouldn't talk either and they'll never talk using those techniques i'm going to tell you a quick story in 2010 the creators of 24 the jack bauer invited me sent me to los angeles brought me to the whole studio had me watch clips of jack doing his interrogations and said teach us and i said yeah okay well here's a b c and d and it's quite different yada yada i told them the whole thing and they said that's awesome yeah we can't do that yeah, that's not nearly <laughs> as fun to watch it's right. a movie and i right. said of course that's why you guys do your movie and Please don't expect to do real interrogations because that'll never work. And right. it's not a time issue. I'll get the prisoners to talk quicker than Jack. It's just, it's not that way. Now, when I got there in 2003, I will tell you, none of the prisoners were talking because as interrogators, we were taught to interrogate using techniques for prisoners off a battlefield in a uniform, smoking gun, brought into a prison. When we get to 2003 in Iraq, the enemy, they're insurgents. They're insurgent fighters, they're civilians. During the daytime, they have a job, and at night, they're blowing up our soldiers. And when we bring them in, there is no chain of command, there's no uniform, there's no battlefield, there's no smoking gun. Prisoners were not talking. We weren't finding intelligence. We weren't tracking down high-value targets. That's what the scene was when I arrived in July of 2003. So when you get to that point and you, you realize, okay, whatever they're doing isn't working. I mean, you, you know, I'm sure they told you what they were doing and you observed it for some period of time. You observed, hey, they're not talking. We're not getting results here. How tough is that decision then, or was it tough, to say, I want to, I want to do something different. I'm, I'm going to go against what I've been trained to do. I'm going to go against what they're doing. I'm going to try a different approach. Was that a, hey, what have I got to lose type of decision? Or was that a very difficult decision to say, I'm going to, I'm going to go against the grain here. Tell, tell me about that thought process. Santa, I love that question. Okay. I arrive in Baghdad. They remember they said there's a Delta Force team out there. You got to go up there. They immediately sent me to Tikrit, Iraq. That's Saddam Hussein's hometown. I'm picked up by this Delta Force team. And when I get there, the team says, "Hey, you're going on these raids with us. We we need you out there, but doing the interrogations at the house." So I thought, "Hey, I'm just going to do raids." So first night we did three raids. It was crazy, like nuts. Well, the next day they said, "No, now you're going to stay with us." You're going to do raids, but I need you, we need you, Eric, to get these prisoners to open up. And they had indicated they're not talking, they're not cooperating. So my initial discovery process is I said, well, let me, let me see. And they had a U.S. prison with hundreds of detainees. I got a couple of prisoners. I went to the Delta Force house where I was going to be living with these individuals. They gave me a room. They gave me a linguist. I was set up for success. I had been trained using the Army techniques. The Army techniques are on a battlefield, soldier in a uniform. They don't teach torture, but they taught zero-sum game with conviction and authority. You're going to make these prisoners think you know everything about them. And then essentially they'll go, they got me. Uncle, here's everything I know. First prisoner, 
I started using that technique and I quickly knew this is not going to work. This is not, a, there's no uniform. They're not on a battlefield. This prisoner didn't respond. He didn't cooperate. He didn't break. He, he didn't buy my game, right? He shut down. No trust. Tried it again. After the second prisoner, I realized why on earth would they? And that's where the discovery process kicked in. As I said, wait, I don't have a plan. I'm not going to create this empathy-based listening new interrogation technique. I've got to figure out what the problem was. And that's the key to success, right? Is when you said, what's the problem? And the problem is this. When you think about capturing a prisoner on a battlefield in a uniform, there's no debate of whether or not you're in the enemy military. You're in a uniform. You got a smoking gun. So when they're sitting in front of you, they don't sit there and go, you got the wrong guy. I'm totally innocent. The debate is, hey, I don't know anything. Yes, I'm in the you know, German military during World War II, but I don't know anything. I'm a nobody. There's the debate. And that's where I realized this is an issue where the techniques the Army taught me were to kill hope. We know everything. Uncle, you got me. To Wait a second. I'm not going to ever get rid of that hope of plausible deniability. How do I use that? Because I know hope's powerful. How do I use their hope to my benefit? And that's where the initial creation of the empathy-based listening interrogation technique spawned. Okay, so what, what kind of hope are you holding out that they're going to get out of the prison? Or that uh, is that the kind of hope that you're talking about? I'm not, we're not, we're not talking about, let's keep, thing, I keep things real simple. Okay. I'm an enlisted guy and I'm an interrogator. Keep it simple. If you're a prisoner, what's the number one thing you need? I mean, I, I, I want to get out. Yeah, that's, what, that's the number one thing I need. I want, to, I want out, right? They want freedom. But if we really back that up, if you're a prisoner, let's say you're, you're um, an insurgent fighter, and you're there in captured by the United States, and four days later, you're released. Do you see where that might be a problem? Because the insurgent fighters are like, wait, why did they let you go? Maybe you're a spy. Maybe sure. you're help. They see one guy they know who, <laughs> who is guilty, let go, and they've got all the hope in the world at that point. Well, they have hope, but they also have a problem. If you're a prisoner that got released and we've been capturing bad guys, the enemy's going to think you're the one that's helping. Do mm -hmm. you see that problem? Ah, uh, okay. So the hope is to be released but the second, the deeper need is to be released without ramifications against you or your family. That's the need of a prisoner. And, th and those ramifications would come from their fellow fighters or from the U.S.? From their fellow fighters. Okay, so if I'm, if I'm captured, I want to be released, but not too quickly. Well, you want you to be, want released, to be released, but you want to know that, that they're not going to come after you and think that you you're go. the one that ratted. That right. is it. Sure. No, that makes a lot of sense. So these guys, number one, they're willing to go months and months and months without talking because they hope they get released. Just like, and you mentioned World War II. I'm thinking immediately of Viktor Frankl talking about how the, the Jews that survived the Holocaust were the ones that had hope and had a purpose for getting, for getting out what they were going to do when they got out. Um, right. E even if that purpose was, was evil. They they had something. They, was, I'm going right. to kill all these. Nazis. I'm going to kill these guards. Right. And that 
They had something Those to... the ones that live. Right. So when you found out that the secondary need was protection upon release, was that was that something that you found out immediately or did it take you a minute to realize that that's what they were looking for? Great question. So as I quickly first week realized, oh my goodness, these prisoners aren't going to talk. And I said, I don't know what to do to get them to talk. I don't even know what they need yet. Let me just talk to them. As I started talking to them, I started to realize, wait a second. First of all, there's no Darth Vader. There's no Luke Skywalker. These are just people. They really are. I mean, I know, and, and you, there could be people on this, on this call who say, wait, those people killed my loved one. I get it. It's a war. It's what happens at war. I'm just telling you, prisoners are just people. And when they engaged with me and they started to become transparent with me, it was only when I sought to understand their situation. But as, as they start to open up, uh, then I realized, wait a second, they want to be released, but their biggest fear is their family that's still out there. So I, I started to get them to participate and really gain cooperation. They started giving me information. But what they would say is, but I can't take you to the targets because they'll know it's me. They'll kill my family. I've got these individuals really excited, really helping. How do I energize that hope? And I energized the hope by saying, no, I am going to get you out of here, but I'm going to protect you. And this is how it would go down. I would basically get the prisoner to go, Eric, here's everything I know, except I'm not giving you targets. And I said, no, I've got to have your boss. And that prisoner, every time, see, when you give them hope and you empower them, they would say, Eric, how about this? There are some bad guys across town. I know exactly where they are. They're at this house. Those bad, I don't even like them. They're a different group. People don't know I know where they live. I know where they are. They actually know where my boss is. If you'll go to their house and then from that house, your soldiers go directly to my boss's house. They're going to think the people at that house are the ones that took you to my boss. They'll never know it was me. And I'm like, that's a great idea. Fantastic. And here's the deal. When I capture your boss, I need your brother and your nephew to know they don't are not going to get a new boss. They're out. They're done. And the only way I can ensure that I get that information transfers, I'm going to release you. And you tell them games up. And I would have to then talk to my commander and say, okay, we're going over here. And then we're going straight over here because I can get you a target we would have, I didn't even know existed, and get you a supervisor of this prisoner. But we've got to go in this order. And then by the way, I need to release this guy to keep his brother and his nephew out of the picture. Now, is That's this a different whole, ball game. Is How much latitude do you have as the interrogator to make these sorts of deals about releasing prisoners and, and protecting people on the outside? How many times were you, were you always able to keep your word on that? So great question. So you understand when I'm sent to Tukrit, first of all, I've never been to war. Sure. It's not like there's some playbook that says, hey, here's the rules. Here's much, how much latitude you have. I, you, you don't know. <laughs> sure. I meet up with this eight-person Delta Force team. They're in charge. I'm a staff sergeant, Chinese Mandarin linguist. They're Delta Force. My authority is 0.0. They're in charge. So what I had to do is say, hey, boss, you know, hey, commander of this team, here's what I'm thinking. Here's the results that they make all the decisions. But because I lived with them at their house, 
day after day, week after week, they started to go, you know, this really works. Matter of fact, if we are timely, we notice that when we go to houses quickly after the prisoners captured, they tend to be there. So we started to treat prisoners information. It can go stale. And we say, it's like a loaf of bread. If you leave it out, it can go stale. And then we go, no, no, it's not a loaf of bread. This is ground beef left out. You have that much time. So now look at the mindset. Wait a second, Eric, we don't get, these prisoners don't talk. We don't trust them to, let's get this prisoner. Let's get him to Eric as fast as possible because this ground beef's good. And if we can get this thing churned up, we can get accurate information, gather targets we didn't know we were looking for, capture individuals we did know we were looking for and keep our prisoners from being overpopulated because I'm going to release these individuals and neuter these other fighters, which is a brother and a nephew, because this guy's going to go out there and say, listen, game's up. These guys know exactly where I live. They know where you live. They know where you live. It's over. Stay home, shut up, or they will blow our house up. Think of how more productive that process is then give me everything. I know it's you. Tell me what I want to know. And they're like, why would I do that? I'm just going to sit in this prison until my number comes up and you got to kick me out the back end because I never told you anything and the prison's overcrowded. I'll be here 90 days and I'll be fine. That, that, that's a different ball game. It's just a sure. completely different way to fight a war. Sure. So once you started making progress, how did that, did you immediately realize it was successful? Uh, I mean, I, obviously you, you recognized the success and that you were able to to see the results when people were released. But as far as the main mission of finding Saddam, how did that go? So I never thought we were going to find Saddam. I, we were just going to do our best, right? I just, what I felt was, this was the best strategy to gather accurate information in a timely manner for my commander. So now I will answer this. Sure. Uh, now, now I want to get to your point because it's a great question. As I started to understand how to get these prisoners to talk quickly and we're moving quickly, at the beginning of December of 2003, and I'll give you a reference that I'm going to be captured on December 13th, 2003 of this story. On December 1st, we captured the driver of the bodyguard who was A, running the insurgency, and B, I thought could take us to Saddam. The driver breaks. We connected. And he said, Eric, I'm the driver for this bodyguard. His name was Muhammad Ibrahim. He said, I deliver all the orders. I deliver millions of dollars throughout the Sunni Triangle every single week. He goes, I deliver that money and the orders for every attack since this war began. I'm taking all orders from my boss. That's the bodyguard, Mohammed Ibrahim. He said, the bodyguard's taking orders from Saddam. And that's when we knew we are that close. If we can get that bodyguard, he might be able to take us to Saddam. That's the first time we saw, hey, this is, hey, we're fighting a good fight here, but we're getting towards the top. So the first time you really had hope of your own was in December. You realized, oh, we're, we're essentially two degrees away from two people removed from Saddam. That's correct. Before that, you said 
that you didn't actually think you were going to find Saddam. <laughs> that sounds, that may sound foreign to, to, to us. What, what, what do you mean you didn't think you were going to find him? It, it seemed like too big of a task. It seemed like the, the techniques weren't going to be successful. So I want to bring back a reference to you made about prisoners in war camps. Have you ever heard about the pilots during Vietnam war camps, how they survived, which ones survived? And they said, yeah, hope was there, but the ones who could not and gave up and ended up dying were the ones that were that would say, wait, I heard we're leaving now, or uh, we'll be gone by Christmas, or there's no way we'll have to be here more than a year. So what I always knew was, wait a second, what if you don't find Saddam? What, are you going to quit? Sure. What, you think I'm working harder because I think I'm one step away? We worked as hard as we could, whether Saddam was going to get captured or whether we were just going after nobodies. So I, I, I didn't know if we were going to find Saddam. Maybe hope is the wrong word, but success certainly seems, seems appropriate. You know, when we talk about the prisoners, they have a purpose. Uh, they did have hope. I think exactly in the way that you're you're describing, I can understand how they have the hope that they're going to be released, and then they have a purpose upon release, and that was either to get back to their family or to get back to fighting. It was one of those two things, depending on whether they're innocent or guilty. But when you found yeah. the driver, you found success. Maybe for the was that the first time that you felt like what you were doing was having an impact? No, I really felt solid that we were having an impact even three months earlier, uh, you know, by, by early September. So I got there in July. By early September, I felt like my interrogation technique, my communication style was gaining cooperation, which was gaining insight, was giving us an actionable intelligence. Now, I can't control what intelligence the prisoners do or don't have. I can just do everything I can to get as much of it as possible. By the time we got the driver, I had extreme confidence. Now, hope's one thing that's good. You know, we don't want to put too many eggs. So there's all these psychological issues, right? Confidence is as powerful. Confidence is hope. So you've got the driver to the bodyguard, right? You're, you're a few steps of what you can... You can draw a line from this guy to Saddam. You know, this guy knows this guy who knows that, who knows Saddam. Walk me through the sequence of how those interrogations went and what information you felt like you needed to get. So walk me through that sort of sequence of events that led up to Saddam. So <laughs> initially the driver was like, I don't know He's anything. Not, yeah, not me. I'm an innocent driver. I know nothing. Right. My goodness. Matter of fact, he left. I'd been driving him for a while. So the way I approached that interrogation is I said, you know, if that's true, I got to get you out of here, right? Because I want to create hope. I said, there's the door. I said, I'll make a deal with you. If you're telling me the truth, I'm going to let you out of there. Matter of fact, I'm going to get you home today. You see that spark of hope? I said, I promise if you do not tell me a single lie, you walk out that door. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to generate so much hope that he can smell the freedom. I want him to see that door. I want him to know, tell me the truth. And I said, but there's a single lie in. If you tell me a single lie, you're here forever. He's like, I'm not going to lie to you. 
at that point, that's where I really have to kick in a skill that I don't know how to teach to people. And that is when I do interrogations, I can map out somebody's world. I can kind of paint the canvas. And what I don't do is so I'll ask them questions about their life and friends. And I won't go in a chronological order or reverse chronological or I'll skip all around, but I can know how to tie it all together. And what an individual do is 95% of a prisoner's life, it's innocent. It's clear. We can paint it on the canvas. They just hide those things that are nefarious. So what I do is I'll paint the canvas and go, I've got a hole here. I've got a hole here. I've got a hole here, right? And then I'll dial it in. I'll, put, I'll kind of back them into a corner, and then I'll catch them in a lie. And they know so what, they what kind of lie, what kind of lie would you catch somebody in that, because they know that if they lie, they're the jigs up, right? What kind of lie is, is somebody willing to tell? So great question, right? I'll I, what I said was any lie whatsoever, this any lie. So let's say I'm talking to an individual and they we're talking about their family members and they say they have three brothers, right? They have three brothers. Say they have two older brothers, and then the prisoner would be here. And then they say they have a younger brother. And they have a fourth brother, let's say, that I don't know about. I don't know there's a fourth brother. But let's say that fourth brother is involved in the insurgency. What a prisoner is going to do is omit the existence of that fourth brother, right? That I, I don't know where that brother exists. They may be older or younger. But they'll just say, oh, I only have three. Two older, one younger. I don't know. But I'm painting this canvas. And as I'm talking to this prisoner, he's talking about doing family events or going to weddings and riding in vehicles with his family members. I realized when he, when my prisoner, who's the third, he has two older and one younger, when he's with an older sibling, the oldest sibling drives. And if my prisoner's with his younger sibling, he, he drives. That, that means the oldest sibling drives. And then I start talking, we're talking about events. And three years ago, he's talking about a wedding in which the two older brothers were with their spouses in one vehicle. And in another vehicle, my prisoner says he's with his younger brother, yet my prisoner's riding shotgun. I have an yeah. older brother. That's a smudge. And I'm like, ooh, gotcha. He, he didn't lie. He just omitted that information, but I caught it. And then I'll go a little bit and I'll say, okay, we good. We all set. And he goes, I haven't told you lie. I'm out the door. I said, well, wait, wait. How many brothers do you have? He said, Eric, I have three. And I said, you have four. And he doesn't know how I know, but at that point he's going, uh-oh. I didn't say, he didn't, there's no way. And I say, remember our deal? Remember the deal? And they'll look at me and go, can we cut a new deal? Right. <laughs> I mean, no, no. Now, at that point, we played the game of chess, checkmate. Now, I've got you. Now, the plausible deniability, that game's over. I don't need to prove what you did out there. We set a new set of rules in here that said you would not lie. You lied. I caught you. Checkmate. Now we're going to cut a new deal. Now I can get into the game and say, wait, wait, I don't want you to spend the rest of your life in prison. That's not my goal. I must still get you out of here. But here's the deal. And that's when their mind changes. And they said, wait, would you really help me? I said, yeah, I'm really going to help you. As a matter of fact, I'm going to get you out of here. But most importantly, I'm going to get you out of here. I'm going to protect you. No one's going to know you're going to do this right? No one's ever going to know that. And I will tell you the key to success, but I'm more proud than even tracking down high value targets is how that goes down. Do you realize when I have a prisoner, I 
can break 65% of prisoners. And you're like, is that a lot or not a lot? Before the empty base listening technique was created, using the old techniques in Iraq and Afghanistan, the old army techniques broke prisoners at 4%. I can break them at 65% compared to 4 Problem is, there are 35% of prisoners I just don't break. I don't know why. There's different reasons. I have 35% of prisoners who are in that prison who did not cooperate with me, and they're a problem. And I've got 65% to cooperate. And I've got to protect these 65%. I've got to create psychological operations. I've got to create information misdirections out into the public, into the prison to protect this 65%. And you know how I do it? I put it all on these 35% who decided they don't want to help me. I'm like, cool, don't help. Everybody out there is going to strongly believe you're the reason they're getting captured. Now look at that 35% that's sitting there going, I'm not helping. I, you know, there's fight, flight, or freeze. People always forget about the freeze. Most prisoners just want to freeze. I'm not doing anything. I'm not helping. I'm not doing it. I'm just going to sit here. Good. Sit there. Let's see how much good that did. You want to talk about good and bad decisions? You do not want to be a freeze in my prison because all information is being told out there that you're one of the helpers because I need that to help the 65% that doesn't Wow! process that. So what is this guy? That's, that's fascinating. Uh, so what is this, what is this driver to the bodyguard end up telling you that leads you to him? So the driver, once he finally is like, all right, here's the deal. I deliver the, the, the money. I deliver the orders. He said, Eric, this bodyguard, my, my boss, he stays at one of five safe houses every night to creep. He'll be at one of these five houses tonight. I get all the locations. I tell Bam Bam. Bam Bam's like, Eric, you're about, your tour's basically up. Yeah, Bam Bam's your commander. Right? I'm sorry. Yeah. Bam Bam was my Delta Force commander. Got it. Okay. Bam Bam says, Eric, you got about eight days before you're leaving this town of Tukree and you're going back to Baghdad and you're going back to the U.S. And nobody thinks Saddam's in this town of Tukree. Nobody has, we're not doing operations the way you're doing operations. This is, this house, this team was the only unit in the country doing operations because this interrogation technique did not exist before this time period. So Bam Bam says, you got eight days. That night, we raided all five safe houses to find the bodyguard. He wasn't at any of them. They brought me back all the prisoners from all five houses. And now I can get these prisoners to talk in minutes. Listening, understanding, building the trust. I mean, quick. And they said, yep, I was running a safe house for the bodyguard. I was hiding the bodyguard. And finally, another prisoner said, yeah, I had a safe house also. But Eric... You are getting too close to that bodyguard. You scared him to this town of Samara. And the prisoner said, in Samara, which is 45 minutes away from Tikrit, the bodyguard has a sub-commander that runs the town of Samara. I know where he lives. And I'm thinking, he's got to be there. So I told Bam Bam, I said, we scared him. You know, we were getting close. These are great. These are all good hits. Bam Bam says, no problem. Next night, we're going to hit that subcommander's house in Samara. Next night, raid the house in Samara, hoping my bodyguard would be there. He was not. 
brought the prisoners back to me. Subcommander's little brother breaks during interrogations and says, Eric, Muhammad Ibrahim, the bodyguard? Yeah, my, my, my brother's his subcommander. Uh, Muhammad Ibrahim doesn't come to this house. He's one block from where you captured me. He scared him to this town of Samar. He rented a house. He's there right now. Go to Bam Bam. And at this point, we're down to like four days, right? So Bam Bam, I said, Bam Bam, we got one more raid. Next night, we went, we raided the rental house and the bodyguard. My bodyguard, Muhammad Ibrahim, was not there. His 20-year-old son was there. They brought me back the boy, the 20-year-old. He says, yeah, my dad rented this house. He's been running from you guys. He was at the house two hours before you captured me. And at that point, I'm thinking, oh, man, I'm done. I'm down to three days. We're almost done. I'm out of time. And I got to get something. I start talking to the boy. We talk and talk and connect and really connect. We start talking about the, the, the son of this bodyguard, Muhammad Ibrahim, him and his dad's relationship was all screwed up. And the boy's crying. He says his dad doesn't love him and doesn't respect him as a man. And he starts talking about how he wished he and his dad uh, would do the things like they used to do when he was a, with a little boy. And I said, what do you guys used to do? And he said, we used to go fishing. I said, where'd you go fishing? And this 20-year-old son of my bodyguard said, well, we go fishing along the Tigris River. And I said, where? He said, well, he doesn't take me, but they still go. And I said, where? He said, they built a pond next to the river. They fish next to the pond. And when the boy said they built a pond, one of the early interrogations that I did when we got to Tikrit, we captured Saddam Hussein's cook. This guy cooked every meal for Saddam for eight straight years. And the cook of Saddam says, being Saddam's cook's pretty easy. The, the president, that's what they called Saddam. He loves this one dish. It's a fish dish called mazgouf. The chef said, I make the best mazgouf in the world. I'm Saddam Hussein's cook. And when the boy said they just built a fish pond next to a river, why are you going to build a fish pond next to the river unless you need to stock the pond for your brutal dictator boss? And I went and told Bam Bam everything. And we're down to two nights. And he says, all right, this is it. This is our last raid. We're going to raid a fish pond. I said, bam, bam, I'm telling you, the bodyguard Muhammad Ibrahim will be there. They're stocking this pond first tonight. So they thought this was so crazy. We couldn't even get approval to do this raid in Baghdad. Bam, bam's calling Baghdad. And they're like, we're not going to a fish pond. The last night I'm going to be heading back to Baghdad at 2 o'clock in the morning. Bam, bam says, we're raiding the fish pond. They go raid the fish pond, and they had built this little shack next to the pond. They go in, they capture these two guys, and I'm thinking, we've got it. This is going to be Muhammad Ibrahim. This might even be Saddam Hussein. And Bam Bam calls, and he said, Eric, it's just two fishermen. He said, your helicopter's coming in from Baghdad. Get all the prisoners that you've been working with. Get down to the helicopter pad. I'm bringing you these two fishermen. Bam Bam brings me these two fishermen. I have loaded up all these prisoners that I've been working with, like 25 prisoners, load up on this big Chinook helicopter. I said goodbye to the team, and Bam Bam told me, he said, you do not quit. He goes, it's going to be a couple of days before you leave the country. Get me another target. So I go to Baghdad, unload all the prisoners. That night, I bring in the two fishermen. 
and it took me 11 hours but after 11 hours i re i got one of the fishermen to turn against the other one and he broke and he said i work i'm a fisherman but i work for muhammad ibrahim he said i catch fish out of the river and i put it in the pond every few days they come get fish out of the pond i said where did muhammad ibrahim the bodyguard go and the fisherman said muhammad ibrahim's kind of my distant cousin he said he came to me a couple of days ago and got the address of our mutual aunt and uncle in Baghdad. He said, I think they went to Baghdad. And I'm thinking to myself, that's awesome. We're in Baghdad. Sweet. Got the sketch, got the map called the Bam Bam of Baghdad, right? The Delta commander. So I need you to do this raid. He said, Eric, we're really busy around here. We do like five raids a night. And Bam Bam of Baghdad said, um, Saddam Hussein's not to Crete. And if Saddam's not to Crete, then Muhammad Ibrahim doesn't know where he is. And it doesn't matter if Muhammad Ibrahim's come to Baghdad because Muhammad Ibrahim doesn't know where Saddam is. I said, can you do the raid? He said, well, I'll put it on the list. He's nice. He's, he's just, yeah, I'll put it on the list. My days come and go. I'm leaving December 13th, 2003 at 8 o'clock in the morning. 2 o'clock in the morning, the Bam Bam of Baghdad calls, said, Eric, we went on your raid. We had a slow night. No bodyguard. He goes, I can bring you the prisoners from the house. They brought me the prisoners from the house, and they're all hooded and handcuffed, and they said, that's the guy that owns the house. I brought in the homeowner at 4 in the morning. I leave in four hours, and I said, you do your thing. Don't rush it. Don't force it. Just listen to him. And I just connected with this prisoner. And it took me an hour until finally I'm like, this guy is not from Baghdad. We captured him at this house, but he's not from Baghdad. He's got to be from Tikrit. And it took me another until almost six in the morning. So how, how did you know he wasn't from Baghdad? From Baghdad, I, his life, his story, all of his actions—like gotcha. nothing indicated that there. You don't just move to Baghdad when you're from Tikrit. You're a relative of Saddam Hussein Al Tikriti. Like you had it going well. I get it. If something there, there, are, there are things that drive you towards this giant city not this he didn't have anything that would have pushed him here other than a war and fleeing and the more i talked to him i started to put his family and once i realized he was from tikrit then i said listen i've interrogated hundreds of prisoners these guys are all related and tribes and i'm like i gotta put him together and once i started putting together i'm like i was like oh my goodness this is like one of the deputies of my bodyguard under the huge link diagram that we had created from the information. I'm like, this is a powerful man. This is like the number two guy under my bodyguard, Muhammad Ibrahim. And we coincidentally found him at a house in Baghdad. No, that was a good raid. That fisherman who thought he was taking me because of his, I'm like, so I, when I finally got the prisoner to admit, yep, I work for Muhammad Ibrahim. I'm a deputy. <laughs> I need you to take me to him. And I'm thinking, on because it's almost six. And I was like, if you can do it in the next 15 minutes, that would be great. <laughs> you could speed And the it prisoner up. looks at me. Love that. And he said, Eric, he said, last night when your soldiers captured me, Muhammad Ibrahim was sleeping in the bed next to me. And that's my heart drop. It just dropped. I was like, this is Delta Force. They don't miss anybody. I'm like, they got him. 
but they got my bodyguard last night and they didn't know it because we don't i was like oh my goodness this this is a delta force team from baghdad they don't even know who muhammad ibrahim was like bam bam and the team we we didn't have a picture of muhammad ibrahim but we knew exactly what our bodyguard was supposed to look like and and we had pictures when he was young he was a good looking guy and he had kind of this john travolta chin you know that chin of john travolta right and i'm start i go to the guards and say where are all the prisoners there's just three prisoners sitting on the ground with hoods over their heads and handcuffs behind their back and i'm like is one of these guys gonna be my bodyguard oh and i start lifting up the the first two they're definitely not him and i'm like please please and i start lifting up the third hood i didn't even get the hood off and i saw the chin and i took it off and i just said you're Muhammad Ibrahim. Man, I've been waiting to meet you. And he looks at me <laughs> and he knows he understood my English. And the guard knew how to speak uh Arabic. And he goes, blah, blah, blah. and the guard said, he said he's been waiting to meet you too. And I'm like, all right, I don't know what this means, but it's six o'clock in the morning. My flight was gonna leave at eight. I had two hours. Nobody thought Saddam was in Tikrit. They're not leaving me behind. I don't get to stay. I've got to do it. I've got to do it in two hours. I brought in the bodyguard, Muhammad Ibrahim. I sat him down and I told myself, don't create a plan. He'll give it to you. Don't force it. Don't rush it. He'll give it to you. Just listen to it. I didn't know what he was going to say, but I knew he would tell me if I would listen. And I, I knew I had to start. And I said, you know, there's, there's only one thing we can talk about, and that's the exact location of Saddam. And he looks at me, and he said, you give me way too much credit. He said, the president? I don't know where he is. And I knew. I knew, I knew where to go. I at least knew where to go. He said, you give me way too much credit, right? And I said, well, I didn't give you any credit. I said, I didn't know who you were before I came to this country. I said, but the 300 prisoners that I've interrogated, the 40 of your family members, that he forced you to get involved in the insurgency that I have in this prison right now, they give you credit. They give you credit for ruining their lives. And he looks at me and he just goes, but he was not rolling his eyes at me. He was rolling his eyes at Saddam Hussein. This prisoner, was a bodyguard. Saddam had hundreds of bodyguards. Why did he pick this man? I've known what all the other bodyguards were doing. They had left the country. They were sitting at home doing nothing. They were not involved in this insurgency, and they certainly weren't being forced to be the head of the insurgency. Why this man? Why this man? Everybody always wonders, why did he pick that guy? I said, this is Muhammad Ibrahim. Saddam Hussein had 30 inner circle bodyguards, the most trusted people in the world. You want to talk about smart decisions? One of the smartest decisions Saddam Hussein ever made was to pick this man. Saddam had 30 bodyguards, inner circle. They were so powerful. They used to lean on their connection to Saddam and use their power against the local peoples like mafia, thugs, and they would terrorize the locals. And everybody were terrified and fearful of the inner circle bodyguard, except for Muhammad Ibrahim. He was the nicest bodyguard in the world. He did not have an enemy in the world. He was a fun-loving, whiskey-drinking domino player. And Saddam Hussein, upon his capture, said, you know what? The biggest problem 
Saddam said, I know how to hide. No one's going to get me. He said, I don't trust these goofball bodyguards. And I certainly don't trust everybody on the deck of cards. They did not think Saddam Hussein was in Iraq because of everybody on the deck of cards, we never found anybody in Tikrit. You know why? Because he made them all leave. So if you have all these lightning rods so the U.S. is drawn towards people on the deck of cards, none of them are in this town. No bodyguards are in this town. And the one person Saddam left to know where he was was the guy who didn't have an enemy. And he knew none of the locals would turn him in because everybody loved Muhammad Ibrahim. And I said, he made you do this. And he, Muhammad Ibrahim blamed him. He blamed Saddam. He's like, why did I get stuck with this? I'm the nice guy. You let all the bad guys go, me? And I told, I knew I had him. Right. And my time, I'm, it, my time's running out, right? I'm giving you the, the condensed notes. But as the time's running out, I looked at the bodyguard and I said, your wife had a baby three months ago. Your wife and that little bitty baby are living at this house in Tikrit. Muhammad Ibrahim, wife had a baby during the middle of this war. And Muhammad Ibrahim couldn't go see his baby, but he had his wife live at his father-in-law's house. And it was right by our, our compound. I, and, the, and Muhammad Ibrahim was shocked. He didn't know I knew all this because we never raided that house. I said, why didn't I raid the house? He said, where else am I going to go find somebody? Then their spouse. I said, but I never sent the soldiers to that house. And he's sitting there and he's shocked and tears are running down his eyes. I said, I'd never hurt that baby. I said, what will he do for you now? What will he do for that baby? You'll never see that baby again because of him. And he's crying. He finally looks at me and he goes, I don't know if I should do it. He didn't say he couldn't do it. He said, I don't know if I should. I'm thinking to myself, oh, I think you should. I really yeah. do. <laughs> and quick. He said, Eric, I can't. And I said, I need it. I need it now. And they're like, what are you doing? Your flight's leaving. I'm picking, I'm getting, I said, we got to go. I said, I need it now. I said, they're making me leave. I can't stay. I need it now. He said, I can't. I said, you're going to change your mind. And when you do, I'm gone. And when I'm gone, nobody knows you can do this. They don't think he's up there. I need it now. He said, I got to think. And I said, man, you're going to change your mind. I will be gone. I said, I can't stay. I said, you're going to change your mind. I said, here's the deal. When you change your mind, you're going to take us to Saddam. No one's going to come talk to you. So you've got to make them come talk to you. Go crazy. I said, do me a favor. Go nuts. Just bang on the walls of your cell, make someone talk to you when you gave a Saddam. And I put him in his cell and I left. I went and grabbed my bags and a few minutes later, they picked me up and I'm driving to the airplane. I'm driving across the tarmac. They're driving me across and the senior interrogator looks at me and he said, what'd you do to your prisoner? I said, I didn't do anything to him. Why? He said, well, the guards are really worried. They say, they think your prisoner's trying to kill himself. And I'm like, he did it. He just broke. And I, told him, I said, hold the plane. And I jumped out and I ran across the tarmac, went to the prison, got Muhammad Ibrahim, pulled him out, set him in the interrogation room. I said, where is he? And Muhammad Ibrahim, my bodyguard looks at me and he said, Eric, we got to go. I said, where are we going? He said, I'm going to help you find Saddam. And I picked him up and I put him against the wall. I said, well, you're not going to help me do anything. I need him. And he goes, we got to go right now. I said, where are we going? He said, we're going back to Tikrit. He said, Saddam Hussein's in a village called Adwar at the farmhouse of a man named Kais, named it Jassim. He said, we got to go right now. And we got, I pulled out a map and he sketches, he goes, he's there, we got to go. And they're back to pick me up. And I'm like, my guy just broke. He's got to take us to Saddam. They said, go get on the plane. 
I said, you don't understand. They said, you don't understand. Saddam Hussein's not decreed. You're not missing your flat. I'm not telling the commander that our interrogator decided he was not going to follow his orders because he's going to send us on a mission to decree. He said, Eric, we do raids every single night. The guy's never there. We're not going to decree. And I gave him the sketch and the map, and I said, call Bam Bam. Tell him Muhammad Ibrahim's dying to take him to Saddam. And I left. They took me to that flight. I left the country. And when, you, when you're at this task force, you don't go home. You go to the Joint Special Operations Command headquarters in Doha, Qatar. And they get me to Doha because you've got to give a top secret out briefing just to go back to the United States when you're with this task force. So the next morning, I show up for this top secret debriefing, and they knock on a door, and, and a senior officer opens up, and he said, all briefings today have been canceled. Clunk. And the sergeant who's escorting me knocks on the door, and he said, um, Staff Sergeant Max can't leave the country until he gives his briefing. And the senior officer pulls me inside. He said, you're Eric Maddox? I said, yes. He said, Briefing's canceled because we got him. Thanks for listening to this episode of Decidedly. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget to tune in next time for part two of our conversation with Eric Maddox. He shares so much more about empathy-based listening, the, the system that he developed, the skill set that he developed that helped him track down Saddam Hussein. He's going to share with us more about how he used that to find him again with minutes to spare. Uh, it, it was a very good chance we would have never found Saddam Hussein if it weren't for Eric Maddox and this technique. So you're going to get to learn exactly how he did it and then how you can implement that into your own lives. You're definitely going to want to tune into that one. You know, I had heard Eric's story once before, before he was on the podcast. I heard him at an event in Fort Worth and he shared this story. And my immediate thought when I turned to Sean afterwards was, we've got to have him on the podcast because I've got so many damn questions that I want to ask this guy. Well, part two is where we ask all of those questions and we get the answers. So stick around. You'll get the answers too. And I hope it allows you to defeat bad decision-making in your own life. If you love this episode, if you love what we're doing, if you hate bad decisions, then go ahead and do us a huge, huge, huge favor. Give us a five-star review on iTunes. It really, really helps us out. I will take that as a personal act of gratitude from you to me, and I owe you one if you do that. Um, <laughs> you can check us out online. Also, if you love what we're doing, check us out on Facebook and Instagram. Instagram's my favorite because I really get to edit the pictures of myself before we post them on there. So without further ado, uh, see you next time. Insights, advice, and comments provided by Sean Smith, Sanger Smith, and speakers identified as part of the Decidedly podcast should not be considered recommendations. Speakers who are not identified as members of Decidedly are expressing their own opinion, and their statements should not be construed as reflecting the views of the Decidedly team. This podcast is produced solely for informational purposes, not personalized advice.